Good morning. In today's headlines, a major dam breach in Ukraine. Water is flooding out and evacuations are underway. Both Russia and Ukraine give conflicting accounts of who is to blame. The number of candidates in the GOP presidential primary continues to grow, and it's starting to unnerve some senior Republican senators. Find out why. House GOP members say the numbers on deporting illegal immigrants just don't add up. They're requesting a special session with an ICE official to get to the bottom of things. And a Portuguese couple is giving tours of their unique stone house. It's built between four granite boulders. We take a closer look at its unusual architecture. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, June 6th. And Kevin, it looks like the House GOP is digging in. in well, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oversight and Foreign Affairs. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And House Chairman Comer, he's, he's vowing to hold FBI Ray in contempt. And also the, the Bureau wouldn't physically hand over the Biden document. And so now they're also looking at the cable in the Afghanistan withdrawal. Yeah, but the FBI calls a contempt threat unwarranted, and Blinken pushed back on the viewing of the cable, saying the channel needed to remain confidential. That's right. Yeah, a lot of allegations and suspicions, but now we want to turn your attention to something more concrete. A major dam in southern Ukraine has been breached, unleashing floodwaters across the war zone. The dam is in a Russian-controlled part of the country. Both Ukraine and Russia say it was an intentional attack by the other's forces. Drone footage published today shows water surging through the remains of the dam and some damaged structures. The dam is around 100 feet tall and two miles long, and it holds a volume about equal to that of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shared the drone footage, calling it an attack by Russian terrorists. A Russian-installed mayor of the town where the dam is located said residents of around 300 houses were evacuated to higher ground. We are evacuating people who are downstream. A large number of infrastructure objects have already been flooded. Sewage pumping stations, power lines were destroyed, some houses. Water is flowing down uncontrollably. The Russian-installed governor of Ukraine's Kherson region accused Kyiv of striking the dam with missiles, but other Russian officials said the dam burst on its own because of earlier damage. The dam is part of a hydroelectric power plant and also supplies water to the Crimean Peninsula and to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. The International Atomic Energy Agency said there was no immediate nuclear safety risk, but that it was monitoring the situation closely. A number of GOP senators are expressing concern over the amount of candidates running for the Republican nomination in the 2024 presidential election. Some worry a split vote could propel former President Trump to an easy victory. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on that concern and what voters have to say about new hats being thrown in the ring. Senior Republican senators who doubt Trump can win the general election in 2024 fear the growing number of candidates in the GOP primary could split the vote enough to give the former president an easy path to ascension. They worry the primary could be a repeat of 2016. Senator John Cornyn said in an interview with The Hill that low-performing candidates should drop out if their poll numbers don't improve in the coming months. He thinks it would be better to have a two- or three-person race in that scenario. Senators Mike Rounds and John Thune agreed with that assessment. Both have endorsed colleague Senator Tim Scott's bid in the presidential race. Rounds says Trump's 2016 victory played out largely due to primary voters being unable to settle on another option, splitting votes between Senators Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and former Ohio Governor John Kasich. 
and the crowded field of contenders in the upcoming Republican presidential primary is about to get even bigger. Governors Doug Burgum and Glenn Youngkin are reportedly planning to enter the fray. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to launch his 2024 bid on Tuesday. Voters in the crucial primary state of New Hampshire had this to say about Christie joining the packed field. I think Chris Christie's getting in this just to attack Trump. Um, I think I don't think he has any real goals at trying to become president. I think it's more of taking someone he doesn't like down. Almost every candidate outside of Trump and DeSantis doesn't stand a real chance getting a nomination, and this is just a bloodbath for the vice presidential ticket for one of those two. Chris Christie is not going to come here with a bang. He's a known quantity even here, and he's not particularly... Uh, dynamic in the way that he would have to be. I don't see him reanimating his long-standing political ambitions. Some felt the added competition could be healthy. Bring it. Let's see what they all have. I mean, you have these people that are running and, you know, we have to show what the competition is. And Trump is amazing, but, you know, a lot of people don't like him. So do we want to be in that situation? The first Republican National Committee debates will be held in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on August 23rd. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Supreme Court has decided to consider if an insult against former President Trump can be trademarked. A progressive activist wants to put the phrase Trump too small on t-shirts. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office denied his application because it found the use of the name Trump would be considered, it would be construed as a reference to Donald Trump. The office's examining attorney found under the intellectual property statute that Trump would need to give written consent. The plaintiff claims his First Amendment right is being violated. An appeals court agreed and filed a petition with the Supreme Court. The case is expected to be heard in October during the high court's new term. The Biden administration's policy of releasing illegal immigrants into the country without a court date will remain blocked. A federal appeals court on Monday rejected the administration's request on the border policy. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on Monday denied the Biden administration's request for a stay on an earlier court order. In May, a federal judge blocked the administration's parole with conditions policy at the southern border. Under the policy, border agents released nearly 9,000 illegal immigrants into the country without a court date in one day, just ahead of the end of Title 42. The administration argued in the lawsuits that without the policy, there would be overcrowding at CBP facilities and threats to the health, safety and security of Border Patrol agents and border crossers. The appeals court denied that motion, saying the warnings ring somewhat hollow on this record, considering the department's track record of overstating similar threats in the underlying proceedings. Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody initiated the lawsuits against the administration. She celebrated the latest court decision, saying, The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has refused to disturb an injunction Florida obtained against a Biden policy allowing the mass release of illegal immigrants into the country. And staying on the issue of border security, New York City is rolling out a new program to deal with the influx of illegal immigrants. Mayor Eric Adams announced yesterday the city will house them in churches and other places of worship. The city is partnering with New York Disaster Interfaith Services for the two-year program. Each location will offer overnight shelter for up to 19 single adult men. The city will also open five daytime centers. 
During the announcement, the mayor also hinted he plans to eventually pay, pay homeowners to house illegal immigrants. He said it's his vision to take the program from faith-based locations to private residences. New York City has taken in over 70,000 illegal border crossers since last spring, and over 46,000 are still in the city's care. Up to 50 houses of worship will be able to take part in this program to start with, offering shelter to a combined nearly 1,000 asylum seekers. Uh, participating sites will offer safe shelter every day with meals, uh, services, clothing donations, and the other services traditionally offered at our other shelter sites. The mayor again asked for help, saying the city is doing all it can to address the crisis but needs additional assistance from other partners. New York City's official website says the city has spent over $1.2 billion on the crisis and is projected to spend more than $4.3 billion by the end of June 2024. House Republicans want answers from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement official who oversees deportations. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on their concerns. Representatives Jim Jordan and Tom McClintock issued a formal request to ICE on June 5th. They are seeking a transcribed interview with the official in charge of the deportations of illegal immigrants. The letter highlights a 68% drop in ICE's removal of such immigrants in 2021 compared with 2020 levels and says the number of removals in 2022 was nearly 70% below the three-year average between 2018 and 2020. The lawmakers say the removal of convicted criminals was also down by nearly 50% between 2022 and 2020. The letter also states the number of illegal immigrants not in custody rose from 3.6 million in 2021 to over 4.7 million in 2022 while over 1.2 million of those received a final order of removal. But the lawmakers say that ICE removed only around 72,000 of such immigrants last year. ICE did not immediately respond to a request for comment. In related news, ICE's acting chief, Tay Johnson, is set to retire at the end of June. Johnson's departure from ICE marks the second significant shakeup among the Biden administration's immigration officials in recent days. Last week, U.S. Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz told employees he would be leaving the agency. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And coming up, a former FBI agent that spied for Russia for 20 years found dead in his prison cell. Find out what's known so far about his passing. And the House Foreign Affairs Committee gets a step further in their investigation of the Afghanistan withdrawal. We'll learn more after the break. Welcome back. The House Foreign Affairs Committee will soon be able to view a diplomatic cable about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The communication reportedly shows dissent over the withdrawal. The cable is from U.S. diplomats at the embassy in Kabul dated July 2021. Some warned that the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan could fall. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall has been pushing for months to view the communication. It's part of the House investigation into the handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal. McCall had considered holding Secretary of State Antony Blinken in contempt of Congress if he failed to provide access to the cable. Blinken previously argued that communication on the State Department's so-called dissent channel should remain confidential. A former FBI agent convicted of spying for Russia died in his prison cell yesterday. Prison staff say 79-year-old Robert Hansen 
was unresponsive when they found him and that life-saving measures were unsuccessful. The Bureau describes Hansen as the most damaging spy in its history. He was sentenced in 2002 to life in prison. He pleaded guilty to spying for the Soviet Union and later Russia for over 20 years. He allegedly received over a million U.S. dollars in cash, bank funds, and diamonds from Moscow. The FBI website says that was in return for compromising numerous human sources, intelligence techniques, and classified U.S. documents. It took investigators years to identify the mole in their ranks. The FBI says around 300 personnel were working on the investigation and monitoring Hansen in the weeks leading up to his arrest. The Bureau of Prisons did not provide a cause of death in its statement. An anonymous source suggested, though, Hansen died of natural causes. And a suspect in the murder of a U.S. teen is scheduled to set to be extradited from Peru to the U.S. this week. He's now making a bid to stop the transfer. Joran van der Sloot is currently serving a 28-year-old sentence in Peru. He confessed to killing a 21-year-old Peruvian business student in 2010. The convicted murderer was arrested in relation to the disappearance of Natalie Holloway, an 18-year-old from Alabama. However, he was never charged. Holloway vanished during a high school graduation trip to Aruba in May 2005. Under Sloot faces extortion and fraud charges in the U.S. in relation to her disappearance. Her remains have never been found, but she has been pronounced dead. The Dutch embassy says it will present a complaint to Peru's foreign ministry. The extradition is set to take place Thursday. And the term Sodom and Gomorrah was trending on Twitter yesterday. One user shared a video of California State Senator Scott Weiner honoring a member of the anti-Catholic group Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Please note this report contains content that some viewers may find disturbing. A group of... The group refer to themselves as queer and trans nuns and are known for poking fun at Christian beliefs. Another user shared a photo of men in leather gear at a pride parade dressed up as dogs, kneeling before a young girl with a pride flag. Yet another user shared a video of a pride parade in West Hollywood. In it, a man is whipping an almost naked man in the back of a pickup truck covered in pride flags. The truck is followed by people walking in dog masks and other leather gear. Sodom and Gomorrah were notoriously sinful cities in the book of Genesis in the Bible. The Bible says they were destroyed by sulfur and fire due to their wickedness. A man started a fire at a northwestern Indiana jail on Monday. Surveillance video shows the individual entering the lobby of the jail shortly before noon. The man walked around, poured a flammable liquid onto the floor and lit it on fire. A trail of flames quickly spread before the man hurried out of the lobby. The local sheriff says the fire was extinguished quickly. Authorities are still searching for the suspect. No one was injured and there was no major damage. Coming up, a rather unconventional classroom high school students are learning on construction sites. We spoke to the founder of the program to find out why he started this initiative. Welcome back. Some high schoolers in New Orleans have a rather uncommon learning environment. They're learning life skills at a construction site, and they aren't just building houses, they're building character as well. 
To date, they've built more than 1,500 houses. I spoke to the founder of Uncommon Construction, Aaron Fruman, and one of the apprentices to find out more. I love it. I've been an apprentice for only about a month or two. I started, I started at the end of February, right after my 17th birthday. And every Saturday, it's just been nothing but a new learning experience. I'm so grateful that I get the opportunity to be a part of something and build a house at such a young age. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. It sounds like it would be a lot of tough work too, though. It is, but it's it's a strong sense of accomplishment afterwards. Um, I've also worked uh, on demolition at the current campus that we're at with a couple of my fellow apprentices. And when the rest of us as a group like uh, visited the campus and looked upstairs, I felt really proud of myself because I was like, hey, I cleared out that room. Like, uh, there were so many different walls here before. Now, um, it's, it's just a big empty space for us to use. And it's just, it just made me feel really proud because <laughs> awesome. I put in the work and I saw That's my results awesome. right in front of my face. Erin, yeah. what exactly did you want to achieve here? You know, what were some, you went into that a little bit, but what were some of the specific goals that you had um, and you wanted to reach that you felt you couldn't do in the classroom? So when I think about like what I want to accomplish with Uncommon, um, it's, it's getting an earlier opportunity for young people to see themselves as part of the industry that makes up the backbone of the American economy, um, where there's a lot of opportunities for high-wage, in-demand jobs that may or may not require a four-year degree, and that we can do that in a way that has less restrictions, less structure, less... Um, you know, top-down expectations on young people and instead gives them the opportunity to bring out the things that they're good at, discover new things that they're good at, achieve things that they didn't think that they could, work with young people from across the city who are different than they are, um, and really have a chance to sort of broaden the picture of what's possible for after you graduate, right? I also want to know about the set of skills that you think they can take away from this whole experience. Are they different? How are they different um, from um, from you know actually being in school? If you can pinpoint some, pinpoint some of yeah. those. Yeah, totally. So you know, we believe like if we want to prepare young people for the real world, right? We need to give them an education that happens in it. Um, and so at Uncommon, everything that we do as part of our process is a programmatic learning opportunity, right? So whether it's we're, ho we're listing a house for sale and having an open house or we're uh, building all the walls to that house or whatever. Um, these are opportunities for young people to participate and engage in the process in the way that it actually happens in the real world. We just find chances for them to play a role in it. Uh, and so we at Uncommon hang our hard hat, so to speak, on the development and demonstration of soft skills. Things like professional attitude, team work ethic, problem solving, communication. These are universally applicable. Jay, can you also share some um, of the lessons you've had that you've valued, valued most so far? I'd say I've learned a lot of perseverance and endurance. Uh, like you said, it is hard work, it's tough, but I'd say the end result is what makes it all worthwhile because you can see the progress that you made right in front of your eyes. Um, not just myself, but with the rest of my team, it's it. Um, whenever we come back after each week, we can see all of the work that we've done. And um, last week, I'm pretty sure we completely finished painting the house. 
And it's just why it shows you what good communication and teamwork uh, with my fellow apprentices and how, how powerful that is and how far we can go with that with just a little bit of um, communication, yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Aaron and Jay. I really appreciate your time today. Awesome, thanks so much for having us. We appreciate the chance to share what we're doing here. A bizarre stone house was conceived in the 1970s as a unique mountain getaway. Since then, it's earned a fan, fan base for its strange, fascinating features, like its construction between four granite boulders. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on the unusual blueprints. Casa do Pinedo, meaning House of Stone, is located 2,600 feet up in the Faf Mountains of Portugal. The location offers breathtaking views. On the second floor, there are three bedrooms and a bathroom. On the ground floor, there's a dining room, a living room, and a kitchen. Fireplaces heat the home. The site even boasts an outdoor pool carved out of another large rock. My grandfather wanted uh, to, uh, to make their all of the, the holidays and be there with the family and friends. So he had to, to build a structure with these facilities to, to be okay for, for the family and friends. Finished in 1947, the home has been featured in a Portuguese film and a 2018 cell phone advertisement. The stone house has even earned itself a nickname from a classic cartoon. The European press became to, to be there in, uh, in, in our house. So we had uh, the Fran French press, uh, Spanish, Italian and English as well. We had their Daily Mail that baptized the house as the Flintstones house. The Rodriguez family says they love organizing guided tours to their unique home. But Vitor insists that it's not a museum. Either way, the structure remains a cherished vacation home for the Rodriguez family, now in its third generation. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A man caught a giant catfish in Italy's longest river. Yeah, he said he could not believe his eyes when he caught the huge fish. It measured over nine feet long and took the fellow 40 exhausting minutes to reel it in. In a video, he said, guys, this is a Guinness World Record. I never expected to make a catch like this solo. After photos and measurements were taken, the giant catfish was put back into the river. The man gave a little caress to the monster fish before letting it swim free, saying, now I release this beautiful fish. That's insane. Moving on, frozen in time for more than a century, but now out for the world to see. Firefighters in Ohio's Marion City discovered a small box sealed tight at their station. It turns out it's a time capsule from 1905. Inside were several items connected to the city and the fire department at the time, including newspapers, a contract to build the station, and a roster of city officials. Firefighters found the time capsule inside the station's cornerstone. They wanted to preserve it ahead of the building's demolition. The time capsule and items inside will be kept at the Marion County Historical Society until the new station is built. That's awesome. I've buried one or the other uh, time capsule that I really? never dug out. What yeah. was in it? I have no idea. No clue, really. <laughs> I wish. I, I wonder if somebody ever found it. Yeah. I wonder if we were to bury a time capsule nowadays, what would it be? Like burying AI and then they look and say, oh, how silly. <laughs> But you know, that's actually a good idea. Go go back to the good old days. All right, <laughs> that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.